You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are joined by Jack Gia, who is the head of crypto for Unlimit. Unlimit is a global fintech company that offers financial services such as payment processing, banking as a service, and on-ramp fiat solution for crypto, DeFi, and GameFi. With that, Jack, a very warm welcome to the show from both Nikhil and myself. Hey guys, how's it going? Glad to be here. Good, good. Welcome, Jack. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, Jack, could you start off by telling us about your background? We know that you've been in the crypto space for a good 10 years or so, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, you worked in the payment space specifically. So, could you walk us through your journey a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I uh, found out about Bitcoin in 2013 and kind of stopped doing what I was doing at the time and just kind of jumped in full time. Uh, found a startup in Snapcard which later on branded to, rebranded to Wire, and I became the first employee there. And like kind of from day one, we were building like crypto payment-related products, right? I mean, at the time, it was like there was no, you know, RPC providers. Everyone ran their own nodes, and you had to spin up your own wallets uh, in order to, you know, receive incoming deposits from users, right? Kind of like the BitPay model, right? And like back in the days in 2013, 2014, there was a lot of hype around merchant processing, you know, I, I think there's a lot of narrative there around kind of uh, the payment use case since the beginning, obviously, right? Um, but obviously, that's kind of iterated a lot over the years, and we can dive into that a bit in the podcast. But, you know, at the time, I didn't really know anything about crypto except uh, Bitcoin, and it made a lot of sense to me. I had studied, you know, kind of political economics at UC Berkeley, so this kind of new internet-native money made a lot of sense. Uh, and that's why I switched careers, right? And, you know, like throughout the years, it's like we, like Wired as a company, we pivoted a lot from, you know, doing like crypto payments where, you know, you're using Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee to like using Bitcoin as a rail for cross-border payments where you're going from like USD to BTC and then BTC back down to like AUD or BRL or PHP or whatever it might be for local currency payout. So I, I think that's, you know, there's been a lot of kind of use cases that have stayed around and has been iterated upon. And that's kind of the subsector of the space that I've been in is, you know, at this kind of Silicon Valley funded startup um, for a greater part of seven years uh, and just trying to find product market fits for using combining like fiat to crypto or crypto to fiat in different use cases. You know, ultimately after DeFi, NFTs were born in like 2016 to 2019. Uh, you know, we started kind of using that payment stack for on and off ramps, right? So en- enabling users to buy some Ethereum so that they can buy an NFT or to use DeFi, uh, like on Compound or something, like that became how we started using the payment stack as far as, you know, because like I'm saying, there's so many different contexts, right? There's, there's a lot of different payment flows that you can do as far as, you know, crypto to fiat or fiat to crypto, and you can use it under a lot of different contexts. So like between 2013 to 2016, the context was kind of like an off-ramp going from crypto back down to fiat, right? Like a user pays with crypto, the merchant receives fiat. 
uh, that use case initially, and it's still around, obviously, and I think it's making a comeback as well um, in terms of this kind of like C to B crypto to fiat payments. Uh, and then the cross-border payment stuff using, you know, like Bitcoin as a rail for cross-border payments, you know, that's, you know, you, you can think of that as like the stellar USDC with the Ripple stuff, right? We, we, we've worked really closely with both networks throughout the years at Wire. Um, and, and that was cool. But, but really, these are like all the same technology, if you think about it, for both like kind of crypto to fiat for crypto payments or using, using Bitcoin for cross-border payments where you combine like an on-ramp with an off-ramp. Or if you decouple all of that to do uh, just fiat on-ramp for like a retail user uh, to buy some crypto or to sell some crypto, right? So, so it's really like underneath the hood, it, it touches on these like Web2 payment networks uh, to move money from like a bank account or a card to and from like a crypto wallet. Uh, so that that's kind of the subsector of the space that I've been in, uh, which I think of roughly as like a Web3 onboarding, right? Because like when a user initially onboards into Web3, what does that mean? Well, they're creating the wallet and funding the wallet. And they need to move money from their existing accounts, um, bank accounts, uh, to some kind of crypto wallet in order to then, you know, access Web3 for different intents and functions, right? So I, I think of like fiat on off ramps as very much part of like the Web3 onboarding subsector of the space. And that's kind of like what I've been doing uh, for the past 10 years is, you know, whether it's my time at Wire or, you know, I went to MetaMask and, and Fiora with Consensus for a year, you know, and we often talk about user activation there. How do you, you know, like a user receives an NFT into their MetaMask wallet. Okay, cool. Now, how do they engage with MetaMask thereafter, right? Like, how do you actually get people using Web3 in a meaningful way? Uh, and, and I think payments or wallets are closely related because it's like wallet creation and wallet funding. So, uh, you know, that my time at MetaMask was very eye-opening because, you know, like when you're building like just like a payment module for other dApps or wallets, that's only one little SDK that's being used for this one button just to buy or to sell. Right. But when you are building the wallet itself, there's so much more behind it. So definitely I learned a lot more uh, uh, kind of like about backend stuff, uh, like RPCs and how node providers work um, during my time at uh, MetaMask and Infura. Uh, but ultimately, like my heart was still in payments. So, so yeah, so after seven years at Wire and one year at Consensus, I came over to Unlimited as head of crypto, which, you know, Unlimited is a payment company and we're building the on-chain stack on top. Uh, to basically build Gen 3 on and off ramps. Sorry, that was a long ramble. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. I mean, uh, you touched on a lot of different things. And, you know, from our perspective, be before we kind of jump into the different aspects of crypto payments and, you know, the on and off rails, uh, crypto to fiat, fiat to crypto, and the, the different uh, use cases in the ecosystem, right? Uh, we just want to know a little bit more about the company that you're working with today that is Unlimit. So we know that the company was founded in 2009 as a traditional payment processing company. And uh, earlier it was actually called Unlimit. And uh, I believe sometime last year, the company entered into the crypto payment space with the launch of GateFi as a crypto payment solution. Just about a couple of months back, uh, you rebranded from Unlimit to Unlimit, right? So could you throw some light on how the focus of the company Unlimit has evolved in these past years, you know, from a TradFi business to a crypto business? And what's the focus as of right now? 
Yeah, so you know the background of the company, you know, Unlimited used to be called CardPay, and I had known about them when I was at Wire because it was one of the high-risk processors that was willing to help crypto companies, right? Especially for like early, like early um, uh, comp- crypto companies that's been in the space since like 2013. Like getting access to banking and payments has always been an issue. So like in the U.S., you know, like there was Silvergate, but there wasn't always a Silvergate, right? Like Silvergate came on the scene. Maybe in 2014 or something like that. You know, there was like this one company called Synapse FI that used Evolve Bank in the U.S. to help some crypto companies. Uh, you know, those Prime Trusts uh, and Wire. You know, like th- there was a lot of uh, kind of um, traffic players that was willing to work with crypto companies, right, on the banking side. And then on the payment side, it was like, you know, WorldPay obviously um, saw an opportunity early on and partnered with Coinbase along with a lot of other crypto exchanges. You know, checkout.com got in the game a little bit later. Uh, so, you know, for Unlimited, it's like we've been around since 2009 building battle-tested payment infrastructure, mostly in the high-risk businesses initially, right, in the beginning, uh, in terms of like you know, FX trading or options trading and, you know, regulated gambling or skilled gaming, like these type of like high-risk verticals within the payment space, right? So th- there's very few payment companies still, I would say today, that full-on support like these type of crypto companies, right? That 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 has a mandate from top down to say, hey, we're going all in on crypto. So, but I do think that there was a natural fit for Unlimited because because of their history of doing high-risk payments very well, where they can control for fraud and chargebacks very well. Uh, you know, because crypto in and of itself is a form of high-risk payment, at least in the from the perspective of the payment industry, right? The, mer- the particular merchant category for for crypto is uh, seen as a high risk transaction is akin to going to like a casino and through in the morning and using like one of their ATMs to try to withdraw cash with a credit card, right? <laughs> like, like it's literally like a high risk transaction. So, you know, there, yeah, there, there's, there's, right. there's definitely some, um, there's definitely some inefficiencies there, uh, in, in, in trying to mix these like web two payment networks with web three blockchain networks. Um, but all of them in a really good position to do that, right? Because of their history. In, in doing high risk processing when they were card pay and then you know rebranding to unlimited.com. So, so uh, about that actually, so I'm actually a little curious. So, uh, so you said that we they started and we said said that started 2009 and you're looking at high risk payments. Was this a private company? Was it in on the on the, how's the financing side of this uh, worked? Uh, are you VC supported? Yeah, so uh, it's a it's a, a wholly owned private company. Right, I'm not sure mm-hmm. that we ever got any uh, outside investors, uh, and uh, okay. it's like after a couple of years of uh, of operations, we became cash flow positive. Right, so we've been cash flow positive for the past ten years. Right. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, so you know, in that sense, it's like the company has expanded beyond our initial grassroots. Right. Like, yes, we started in high risk, but we've been broadening out to. You know, airline payments or tourism or SaaS subscriptions and just the regular e-commerce stuff for payments. And you know, the company's been growing over the years, uh, in, in expanding into multiple jurisdictions, getting licenses there. Uh, you know, we're principal members of uh, Visa, Mastercard, and JCB, and UnionPay. You know, Diners Club, Discover, you know, Amex, this, these type of right. And uh, you, you've always been chosen to. 
look at non uh, i mean niche kind of uh, areas right because other payment railways uh, rails sorry <laughs> payment rails uh, would would have like looked at uh, the uh, digital e-commerce for example or uh, one of the, the as as kind of opportunities right uh so my uh, my question basically was uh how 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 come you didn't go after you know like the uh web 2 digital payments uh rails like uh, stripes of the world or the plaids of the world have done yeah we are right that that's exactly what we're doing now uh okay know, I, i think the entry point was high risk but now like we're kind of uh broadening out to basically become the stripe of the rest of the world right because if you think about right. it, like when you think about the classic merchant business is like where are these merchants of course there are merchants everywhere there are businesses everywhere but by and large they are concentrated in certain geographies or countries right so the number of businesses in the US that need payment services or you know like for example in Hong Kong or Singapore these are hub these are financial centers and, and these layers they overlap right because There's a lot of businesses in Hong Kong. Obviously, they have bank accounts. If they do any kind of business, they're going to need payment services, and therefore, it makes sense to onboard merchants in Hong Kong. You know, some kind of card scheme compliance and principal membership in Hong Kong that allows us to do local acquiring and to allow us to onboard merchants in these geographic nodes, right? So, you know, Lagos in Nigeria or like Singapore or Japan. or you know Mexico and and Brazil these are all um different countries with a lot of businesses doing international business right that requires international payments and that's kind of our strategy is to set up like local operations there along with local licensing in order to support like local payment right. infrastructure and this is beyond just crypto right like like I'm saying crypto is just one of x merchant category from the payment industry standpoint right it's just one of x um you know and right. that's, that's also what we do that's also what makes what we do for the crypto industry very interesting because we're not fully reliant on crypto's growth for our own growth it's only one merchant category for us so if there's like an mm-hmm. extended bull run or an extended bear market like you know usually uh, on ramps have a hard time during bear markets because you know whether you're moonpay or ramp or you know unlimited crypto or any other on ramp you have less trade activity there's less volume there's there's less uh purchases and so there's, there's just less overall activity during a bear market right right and, and if if 100% of your business 100% of your clients are crypto wallets or crypto dapps then you know your own business suffers throughout that two and a half years right but for us right. it's like we do a lot more than that we we you know we have merchant services we have banking services we have banking as a service we have payout services and we do this for a lot of different merchant categories initially it was high risk but now it's expanding into all these different merchant categories for you know for gaming or for e-commerce or whatever it might be so 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 why why crypto now uh, i mean since you've been here around for a while uh what made you think that uh i mean as a company that this is the right time i mean because if you look at it from the average uh, uh person's outside in viewpoint uh this is an awful time to do get into crypto right because everybody seems to be uh scamming everybody else and uh, it seems to be kind of like this big uh, uh big uh, dumpster fire 
Uh, I just wanted to jump in and throw a little bit of context as well, you know, for the audience. Like Nikhil mentioned, you know, it's, it's a good time to be kind of having this conversation. Because, you know, if you look at it from the macro perspective, right, like ever since Bitcoin and crypto came into existence, it's been roughly like 15 years, right? And I would say the first 10 years or so, most jurisdictions kind of played the waiting game. You know, they didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, some countries, you know, outrightly tried to ban it. Some classified it as an asset that you can own. Some classified it as a means of payment, you know, as, as a currency that you could use. But in some other countries, maybe, you know, they, they still don't know what to do with it. So with all this being said, you know, even today, uh, we see cryptocurrency as like a major point of discussion in these large economic summits like BRICS or something else. Jack, if you could kind of start off with a, a broader picture of, you know, what the global payment landscape looks like uh, in general, you know, how these different uh, geographies are different in terms of payment. Uh, I think, you know, the audience would probably get a better idea of, you know, why payment is one way in this part of the world versus another part of the world. Right. So, I mean, I want to start off by saying that, you know, payments is not something that everyone thinks about on a daily basis. They just assume it works, right? Like when I swipe a card, it just works. If I make a transfer on WISE or Western Union, I don't really think about how the money moves underneath the hood. I just know that it works. So, sure. you know, like for, for most people, it's like it's something you use every day, but you don't think about the connectivity between these different payment networks and corresponding banks and how money moves uh, with uh, at the treasury level or at the programmatic level uh, across the world, right? So, you know, and, and also the payment industry is just one subsector of traditional finance, right? Like if you think of banking services or FX or payments or trading, right? Investing, right? Asset management, you know, all these TRAFI, uh, horizontal ancillary services, you know, payments is one of X, right? But payments, I think, you know, has been progressively uh, integrated with crypto this whole time, just at different levels or, or to a different depth, right? Like I'm saying, like WorldPay had already powered Coinbase as early as 2014. That's a huge deal, right? Like, uh, and, and, you know, some of these uh, different um, sponsored banks in the U.S., such as Silvergate or Signature or Cross River or, uh, or Evolve Bank, like they've been... Uh, having an appetite until recently, until recently, they've been having an appetite to, to power crypto companies. So there's definitely like a huge crossroad between those two in terms of crypto and payments, right? Um, and, but, but you're right. Like as far as the, the general, uh, openness of TradFi companies towards crypto and they've been like, you know, waiting and seeing, watching, analyzing, and now they're kind of making moves, whether it's like the BlackRock ETF, whether it's like Fidelity, you know, hiring 600 people for like a digital asset arm, whether it's NASDAQ having a digital asset arm and potentially replacing Binance as a venue of exchange, right? Whether it's Visa doing USDC interoperability uh, and working with different acquirers uh, for USDC settlements, Right. Like these are all different areas of traffic that is now starting to take the space much more seriously, having deployed resources, willing to bring on a bigger team, you know, such as myself here as head of crypto of Unlimited. Uh, and there's a lot of other versions of me at other companies. Right. There's a head of crypto at Cross River. You know, right. uh, his name is uh, uh, Lucas, right? He used to work at Oasis, uh, with Don Song out of Berkeley, right? That was like a crypto native protocol. It was like a layer one blockchain, Oasis network. And, 
Lucas was head of BD there, and now he is head of crypto at a Web2 uh, bank, right? Uh, and so there's there's a few of us that has like crossed the chasm from Web3 back into Web2 in order to uh, effectuate change uh, from that TriFi, uh, within TriFi to make sure that we all kind of collectively steer the ship in a correct direction, right? Like, and I use this word correct very loosely as far as my opinion of how things should unfold. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, as far as payment goes, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, payment companies out there now that are looking to kind of play some more serious bets on the crypto space, knowing that in the face of stable coins and like CBDCs and more regulatory clarity on different crypto assets, that that they can offer these services in different business contexts, uh, you know, such as like crypto to cards. You know, you have a lot of a lot of that, right? Like the Gnosis pace, where you have like this Gnosis chain, where a safe or multi-sig wallet, or, or sorry, a smart contract wallet that that you hold crypto, and you have like a credit card or debit card attached to that. And, and it charges, you know, using like a delegate call or something to charge the smart contract wallets at the, at the time of the purchase when you swipe the card. You know, there's a lot of like these kind of Web 2 to Web 3, Web 3 to Web 2 payment flows in permutation to like C2B or B2C or B2B or P2P um, use cases where, you know, payments can power crypto use cases, right? And bring more utility and amplify crypto use cases. So... So I think now today is uh, the best time to get in uh, for for these kind of Web two payment enterprises to to take a ser- more serious look and invest in crypto, either buy or build. Right in in Anonymous case, we have chosen to build. Right, we're not like buying another uh, product. Like you know, there's like other crypto payment gateways out there that you can integrate like a third party, or you can like you know uh, use like a wallet as a service provider, such as Fireblock or something. Right, you can you can buy a lot of tools so that you don't build anything and you kind of just stitch together these tools for your crypto module uh, or your crypto division, right? Or you can, you know, uh, hire experienced people that have been doing this in the crypto native space for the past 10 years and come in and take all of that learning and failures, uh, you know, and, and try to apply it in building like a Gen 3 version of uh, of this connectivity between payment networks and blockchain networks that's a great overview uh, wh- one thing i kind of uh, when you were initially talking about unlimit and uh, how it is kind of uh, uh, spread across so many places i think one in- interesting uh, idea maybe we could go into is you know explore certain markets because uh, a lot of us are used to the Western uh, idea of, okay, you have the MasterCard and the Visa card and you have a card and you swipe and you don't really think about exactly how that works. Uh, but there are now, I mean, you're looking at all of these new markets uh, in LATAM, in APAC, uh, in Africa. Uh, uh, so, so maybe can you compare and contrast uh, maybe some countries like, I don't know, Argentina or... Uh, I don't know, Botswana in Africa or maybe uh, Singapore or India uh, in, in, in APAC. And, and, you know, the differences in, you know, first of all, the penetration of these kind of conventional Western ways of uh, doing things like credit cards and debit cards. And uh, well, what is the alternative traditional thing that was there? 
and how basically uh, these markets perceive crypto as a way of, way of payment and uh, are using crypto for payments. Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, the backdrop there is that every country has certain payment and banking infrastructure that's been developing over you know the past 30 years or 50 years or whatever it is right and yeah. they're at different historical development points in in their progress right so like some countries are still cash economies uh they have very poor banking infrastructure uh that allows mm-hmm. fintech to come in and kind of leapfrog the banking system and just build a bunch of different fintech apps you know you can make the case that like you know alipay in china or like mpesa in in africa or you know, uh, different e-wallets around the world in Southeast Asia, like GrabPay or whatever. So mm-hmm. like you, you have a lot of local payment networks that have kind of uh, been born in the past 10, 20 years due to technological progress, due to the internet, due to, you know, us all moving onto the cloud and online. And you're able to create just regular Web2 fintech products that are ubiquitous, ubiquitously used uh in, right. in a certain country or region, right? And that, and so it's like, uh-huh. I, I, roughly speaking, I think about the categories as for, for payment methods as like cash, card, bank, and, and uh, e-wallets, right? So right. You know, in some countries, like in the Philippines, uh, you know, neither is there like a super strong e-wallet nor is there a strong banking system. So by and large, the majority of people still use cash so you have to have cash-based payment methods at different cash points like 7-Eleven or, you know, some kind of bodega, right? some kind of uh, store where you can, you know, get like a coupon code for, uh, for, for that cash uh, and, and then use that coupon right. code to claim like an invoice or order uh, uh, for your goods and services. So, you know, like it's, it's asynchronous and it's different, but at the same time, I think, you know, every country is obviously looking at crypto whether it's from a regulatory standpoint on how to regulate it, whether it's outright banning it, whether it's trying to build their own, you know, central bank digital currency, uh, you know, their own kind of private stablecoin, private network stablecoin, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the thing is, is I think in the South and the East, there's an informal economy that is commonly accepted amongst the local populace that uses uh, kind of these great markets because it's cash-based economies. There, there, it's like almost like a great market uh, where you have like a different FX rate locally versus the official FX rate, right? And that's where crypto has seen a lot of adoption in these kind of southern hemisphere countries, right? Uh, because because if you're in Argentina, for example, you know you're. You're just trying to get like a U.S. dollar. It could be cash or it could be a stable coin. So, and it made sense to people because of local hyperinflation. And so there was a lot of organic adoption of crypto, right? And that's very different than the government stance, of course, right? Like in Nigeria, like or in India, the official government stance is like, hey, you can't touch this. You can't touch crypto, right? If you're a financial institution, if you're a bank or a payment company, you can't onboard another crypto company that facilitates fiat to crypto uh, purchase or sales, right? And if you do, then you're gonna get banned or you're gonna get fined or whatever it is, right? So that's while that's while that's the official stance of the local regulators, that 
doesn't mean that they have the ability as a government to fully enforce the populace to not use crypto on a peer-to-peer level. So you see that in like the Binance, you know, like peer-to-peer marketplaces, right? Uh, where and there's, lot, and there's a lot of peer-to-peer marketplaces, right? It's not just Binance. It's you know, it's CoinCola in China. It's you know, PayChance in in Nigeria. There's there's a lot of like these kind of peer-to-peer escrow-based uh, uh, on off ramps where you're transferring money to somebody else, and that somebody then sells crypto to you, right? So, so one thing obviously you talked about uh, just now was about limited state capacity, right? So even though there is a law or a rule or a regulation, oftentimes uh, it's not really enforced. So, so how do you actually see the opportunity there for, you know, like a, a proper crypto company to get in? Because then you know, obviously you're kind of opening, operating in a unregulated gray kind of area, right? And that's a, that's a risky proposition, right? And this is kind of uh, tied to what Nikhil is asking. And I think I read in one of your interviews, Jack, uh, where you talked about, you know, some of these uh, areas of the world, you know, where there is no properly established payment infrastructure already. I think you stated the importance of working with a local partner versus trying to get your own payment license in some of these areas, right? So could you just throw some light on that as well? Yes. And I want to answer this question in two ways. Like one is this is happening asynchronously because there are different layers of jurisdictions here, right? You have physical jurisdiction and regulators, but you also have digital jurisdiction and the guidelines and policies of local payment networks. And then you also have like these kind of on-chain jurisdictions as far as code is law, right? Smart contract, it's programmatic, you know, it's the RPC API, all every endpoint is the same and people just have to follow these standards, right? You have like, you know, right. different ERCs or EIPs uh, or, you know, BIPs. There are different standards that you follow on-chain versus off-chain. And off-chain, right. you know, you have kind of digital versus physical as far as like, of the web 2 technology stuff so so when a country does not clearly regulate crypto we would still want to run things compliantly on a global level as far as either uh getting uh, proactively getting some kind of other license like a payment institution license or e-money like an authorized payment institution license or like an e-money institution license or, or some very vari- some variants in that country. Right? It's called by different names in different countries, right? In the U.S., it's like a money services business with, with money transmission license. In uh, you know, in, in the U.K., it's you know EMI, right? It, it's you call it by any other name, um, but you try to get some kind of license and you you run like a very strict compliance regime on a global level uh, for AML, for CFT, for uh, you know compliant being compliant. Uh, generally speaking, even if it's not enforced locally, right? That's that's what every regulated you know financial institution has to do, uh, and there are teams that are taking that risk, uh, such as Unlimited, such as WorldPay, such as Checkout, such as you know Stripe. Even like Stripe got into the on-ramp game, right? And they're also powering a lot of NFT projects. So, so I I think it's really important to think about the physical jurisdiction uh, and what the laws are. Uh, and to watch out for that. And that's why some of the big players don't come in because there's no regulatory clarity, so they don't even move. But, you know, asynchronously, there are first movers, right? And, and it doesn't always work out, obviously, like with Silvergate and Signature, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, this is, um, 
this is something where I think the payment industry, relative, relatively speaking, within the world of TradFi, is probably one of the most progressive uh, in that in that the native payment networks in the Web2 world, such as Visa and MasterCard, are also going full, uh, go, going all in on crypto, mm. uh, at least on stable coins, right? And the fact that they're right. the fact that they're doing that, and the fact that they have allowed they have allowed for the past ten years to um, to allow different merchants and businesses, crypto businesses, to access their payment network. You know, is a private payment network. It's a private network that has their own compliance and guidelines and policies, which they have allowed crypto companies that are regulated to come in and use their payment network for different transactions to move value for you know, crypto-related transactions, right? Uh, and, and that's right. very, that's very important. It's like, yes, BlackRock might have been sitting on the sidelines for the past 10 years until recently did they move into the ETF. But Visa has not been sitting on the sidelines ever, arguably. And for the past 10 years, mm-hmm. they have allowed this to happen a- along with the acquirers and processors in that equation. You know, so even for Unlimited, it's like we've been doing... Uh, crypto-related uh, transactions as a as a company for the past six years, right? Now we're officializing it by bringing on a head of crypto and formalizing a business division uh, for, for crypto. But even before that, for the past six years, we've been already helping different merchants with like crypto payments or allowing them to access Visa Nets uh, for card transactions to buy crypto. Right. So, so, so the way I understand is basically these things happen on a kind of like a piecemeal basis, informal basis. And now slowly people are recognizing that, okay, this has become big enough and uh, is uh, there's enough interest and movement that uh, we should probably treat it as a separate asset class and, uh, you know, treat it as a separate business and, and kind of build, build a organization capacity around it. Uh, so in terms of, uh, obviously, you mentioned the big players are moving in and all that. And one aspect of that is essentially that, okay, there's clearly some movement that they're seeing around regulations across jurisdictions and uh, stuff like that. But there's also, you know, you mentioned uh, countries where, say, for example, the banking infrastructure is poor, this is the, uh, and, and people are using cash all the time. Uh, this could be a, uh, an opportunity for uh, companies such as yours and crypto payment companies to come in and leapfrog the status quo. Uh, but there's also, uh, in addition to the local jurisdiction regulations and uh, things, there's also the global ones, right? Like uh, the standard ones like KYC, uh, AML. Uh, how do you see that uh, work out? Uh, and how, how do you see that kind of get addressed uh, when it comes to these kind of risky geographies? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the oil and water and the challenge, right? Because you have anonymous yep. users, you have anonymous crypto users uh, where, you know, you can use a non-custodial wallet where the non-custodial wallet doesn't even track you in the Web2 sense. You know, there's no mixed panel, there's no Google Analytics. Uh, you know, they're trying to maintain your privacy and your anonymity uh, and and the, you know the, the wallet themselves don't collect any information on you they don't know who you are they don't even know your device or your IP address because they don't collect it because they're trying to stay fully decentralized uh, and, and not know who you are right then 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 how does any reporting work how does any tracking work how, how can the government hunt you down and uh, you know that how can governments enforce any policies 
right? That's, that's the general mm -hmm. oil and water. Um, and, and I think it will persistently stay that way uh, because that's inherent to the technology. I mean, there's things you can do, of course, right? Like there's things that the industry has been working on that hasn't fully taken shape yet, such as KYC, the wallets, right? If you have a non-custodial wallet and you go through KYC one time, you can actually hold that KYC against your wallet on chain and you can opt to share that with uh, another protocol or another entity, either as a zero knowledge proof or you're sharing the full kind of PI. Yeah. Or the, the I, I have heard uh, recently that there's a lot of uh, work happening around KYC and the uh, concept of a, a distributed, uh, uh, sorry, the DID, right? So the distributed identity uh, where you kind of own a key or some kind of proof that kind of identifies who you are and you've kind of used that for all your, uh, all the places where you want to uh, prove that, okay, you are who you are without, uh, you, without revealing all the information, uh, necessarily just enough information as required for that particular transaction to happen. Uh, do you guys have any plans to work on that space from a technical perspective? Yeah, we actually do. I mean, I, I think this was something that, uh, became apparent, uh, to me probably in 2018. Um, you know, in terms of this kind of on-chain compliance layer, but you know, it, it's, it's just one subsector of the crypto industry that hasn't developed very well. You know, you have like Aave Arc, you have like some like public permission networks, you have like KYC gating, like token gating, um, but it's just not adopted because a lot of people simply uh, choose to maintain their anonymity. At least right now, as far as like the amount of people that are in crypto today is very little compared to, you know, um, the entire world, right? And most people don't really know what this stuff is as far as privacy and key management and signing transactions to use Web3 and, you know, securing their wallets, and et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, like perhaps later on, people would just come in by buying like a Bitcoin ETF and they don't even know what custody means. They don't have to hold any, you know, like hardware wallets, you know, and, and they're just, um, you know, uh, their identity is stored in a Web2 sense in the centralized servers from, you know, from, from BlackRock or whatever, right? From any TriFi player right. that does your KYC. So, so there's, a, there's, I think there's definitely a world where that happens and the majority of people onboards onto crypto through some centralized entity in the TriFi world. Um, but as far as the DeFi world, the decentralized world is concerned, you know, like that has to be the direction it goes if it wants to be compliant. And unless it, you know, becomes like fringe persistently, right? If our, if our industry stays fringe persistently, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like Linux or uh, some other open protocol in the face of Google right. and Netflix. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and that may very well be what happens. And I don't mean to sound dystopic, but... It may very well be that like self custody actually stays fringe and it doesn't have a network effect uh, for like mass adoption. Yeah, but it could also be like on a on, on a on a spectrum, right? So you could basically have something where you you say, yeah, okay, uh, if for certain services or like for like the vast majority of the uh, things that the government wants you to. Uh, handle uh, I mean, or once once your uh, credentials fall, uh, we come up with a way to do it uh, using this you know I don't know digital identity or crypto in, in a way that kind of is 
accepted by the governments or accepted into a standard, uh, just like KYC, AML standards. Are there kind of government bodies that uh, work on this stuff from a technical perspective as to, okay, I accept this uh, set of uh, attributes or IDs or identities as sufficient for a KYC or an AML? Yeah, there's actually a few governments that are doing that in pilot with crypto native startups that are talking to these governments about that, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it actually helps them, right? Because like, let's say you're the FBI or the CIA and you're trying to hunt somebody down and there's all these anonymous wallets uh, and you have no idea who they are. Like to have this kind of KYC token against wallet that's is an attribute that you can read on the blockchain and say, okay, cool. Well, here's a trail where we can follow and get something. And there's a, maybe there's like, right. a, there's like a point. Uh, or, or even a, you can even do it as a negative one, right? You can basically say, okay, uh, I can ignore all of these because they've got KYC tokens associated. So uh, it's probably not the one that I'm looking for. Here's the subset of anonymous ones that I need to focus on, right? Yes. It's just one of those things that's very hard to solve. You can try to bring the industry under control uh, and enforce that control somehow. But it's like Mm -hmm. the technology itself is permissionless. Anyone can spin up a wallet anywhere. You can do so remotely without Internet access. And you can do things through state channels off chain. Uh, You know, and and you only need like limited access to broadcast anything. Uh, You can even do it over SMS rails. So, you know, like if you want to talk about bad actors, uh, in terms of like North Korea or any hackers and spammers and, and scammers that, you know, tries to steal your coins and just bad actors in general that are like laundering money. Yeah. It's like you can use crypto to do that. Yes, absolutely. And how much can you use regulation to try to stop that? Like in theory, it's as hard as stopping as cash, right? Like cash is permissionlessly flown. Yeah. Of course, cash is harder. Yeah. Like cash has physical limitations on movement. Uh, whereas crypto doesn't. So I don't think that that part of the industry will ever get solved where you have bad actors. Um, even though you have teams that are trying to, you know, like Crystal Blockchain or Chainalysis or Elliptic or TRM Labs, you have these like on-chain analytics transaction monitoring tools that can definitely help you in that investigation. But if you want to enforce that ubiquitously across like, you know, your populace uh, in your country uh, for consumer protection, like... You, you can push in that direction, but, but I, I, the level of effectiveness is, is questionable, right? But I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. it, it's not going to stop them from doing it. And there are definitely crypto native startups that are working with different governments to legitimize that and, and officially honor that to say, hey, this KYC token is very useful. Thank you, you know, for, for giving this information to the governments. Uh, it's, it's helping us to do our job, right? Right. And, and I mean, maybe you can tie it to a CBDC thing also, right? So they can go back and say, hey, uh, there's a, here's a centrally issued digital currency and that's the E, I don't know, the E yuan or the whatever the uh, uh, country's current, uh, digital E rupee or whatever it is and say that, okay, uh, in order for you to be able to use this CBDC, uh, oh, by the way, you need to also uh, provide uh, certain credentials, your national ID or whatever, right? Uh, it's a and and that's where I said uh, it uh, where I felt it was like a spectrum. So 
uh, if you think about it, uh, I mean, if you take the uh, example of India, India uses uh, has uh, the Aadhaar system. I'm not sure if you know about it, but it's a it's a national identity and it's tied to your biometrics. So it's they they tie it to your fingerprints and your retina scan, and I mean, that's it's completely uh, a complete uh, thing where you know it was an amazing exercise where they took this and applied it to the entire population. But they've been trying for the past, I don't know, I think it's about six or seven years now, but they still haven't reached 100%. They would never reach 100%, right? Because it's just not possible when you've got such a large country and so many people to actually make sure that, you know, everybody in that system is going to be having that. And so there'll always be some folks who are, outside of the system uh, and some folks who are in and they, they would always need to have some mechanism to accommodate for that, right? So there will always be an edge case or an exception case. And maybe, like you earlier pointed out, like Linux or like the other thing, there, there may be certain crypto, uh, you know, diehards, libertarian folks who basically say, no, I am not going to do this. I am not going to provide you with uh, any kind of KYC or anything. And uh, I'm happy to live uh, outside that particular thing. And, you know, I have the means or the uh, will to kind of uh, deal with the consequences and the hardships that that brings. Whereas the majority of the, of the, of the population might say, okay, well, but this is the law, this is the regulation, we have, I mean, we have to follow it and, and, and fall in line, right, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, in terms of uh, Unlimit, we talked about Gate 5, which is a crypto product in, in passing. But I was, I was just kind of curious. So uh, given uh, your focus on payments and uh, what, what you want, you, you said you wanted to be the stripe of the rest of the world. Can you give us some insights into your uh, what you see uh, your next challenges and the next opportunities? Or what's what what's on your roadmap? Uh, how are you thinking about the largest crypto story as uh, from the company perspective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of coordination complexity when you're working at uh, like a Web two enterprise the size of 500, or you know, in world pace case, it's like 10,000 people. You know, or check out like a right. couple thousand people, like. <clears throat> When you're steering any ship that big to try to uh, build something, there's a lot of layers, right? So it inherently moves a little bit slower than a startup. And there's a relative speed at which we're trying to move to uh, take different products to markets that will be very impactful uh, where, where, where we have the ability to operate at scale for these different product lines. So, you know, so generally speaking, it's on and off ramps, right? So... Fiat mm -hmm. crypto and crypto to fiat. But then once again, if you combine that with different permutations of use cases, uh, then, then, then it serves a different subsector of the payment industry, right? So like if you break down payments as like, you know, consumer payments using cards or alternative payment methods or e-wallets such and such, right? You have business payments because you're trying to, you know, uh, pay an invoice, like a $25,000 licensing fee or monthly whatever fee that you're paying from a business to a business. You have cross-border mm -hmm. cross payments, uh, which is by and large, you know, B2B cross-border payments where, you know, like, like an like a e-commerce website might be buying some supplies from China or Vietnam or something, right? And then right. you have like international remittance because, you know, like a, 
someone from Nigeria has moved to San Francisco and they're trying to send a thousand dollars back home every month. Uh, you know, and you have kind of B2C payouts because uh, Microsoft has 20,000 employees around the world and they have to do a B2C payoff one to many to a bunch of users. So, so you have all these different permutations of payment use cases. Now that you couple it to crypto, what does it become? Right? What is it? How does that work? And where can crypto or stable coins offer more efficiencies for those use cases where it ties into uh, our current payment stack where we can already do, you know, payment collection and payment disbursements or you know, treasury management FX. Uh, and, and we're already servicing all of these different type of merchants. How can crypto be useful for them, either as like a back office tool or, or as on the front end where the users, you know, might want to receive crypto, right? You offer that as an alternative payout method or you know, they want uh, they, they want to reach crypto audience so, so that users can pay with crypto to buy their product. Or, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they, maybe they are as a business, they are already using stablecoin or crypto themselves because of that kind of informal economy that there isn't strong enforcement. And for many, many years now in this particular merchant category for, the, or for this, for this particular industry, people in it, uh, and the businesses in it have already become accustomed to, to managing treasury on chain and using some kind of crypto wallet uh, to deal with USDT in the, or USDC or some other stable coin in the context of FX and cross-border payments, right? So, and, and if they already have that, then how do you service them uh, to give them more accessibility and connectivity and that they need? So, so there, you know, there's a lot of things happening around the world where uh, different merchants in different countries have different needs for in relation to crypto. And, and these are like, you know, the products that we're building here to be able to uh, service all of these different use cases, right? Uh, and, and these are just generalized APIs we're creating to, because it, from, from a technology standpoint, it's rather agnostic. Um, because whether it's a C2B payment or a B2B payment, if you're going from crypto to fiat, like 90% of the technology that you're building after that is the same. Perhaps the last mile changes but 90% of the crypto to fiat flow and what you need for that on the back end to support custodial hot wallets, to you know, read and write onto a blockchain network so that you can send the webhook uh, for you know, uh, the transaction status, right? Or the settlement mechanism for, for clearing different batch transfers uh, once the transactions are done, you know, the, the many to one and the one that gets settled out. All of these like more like uh, ops or treasury flows, like the like the, this is the hard part of the challenge is more internal. I don't like to think about competition as external. I like to think about it as challenge from internal. It's like you're not competing against anyone. You're only competing against yourself in your path of execution and your vision as you're trying to implement it, right? So as you're trying to implement your vision of your understanding of where the space is, where the, where the crypto space is in relation to payments, your only competition is yourself on how well can you execute it. So, you know, and, and that's what we're doing here is like facing these challenges internally and, uh, you know, working across teams, you know, with legal, with risk, with compliance, with ops, with treasury, with, uh, you know, different teams, uh, obviously on the technology and the product side uh, to get these things built and then go to the market, right? So, 
So yeah, so I, I don't really think about competition externally. I like to watch the industry, obviously. I like to watch the landscape and what other people are doing, uh, and and you know where what direction people are sailing. You know, it's almost like this this map of a landscape where there's a lot of actors and players, and they're doing different things. Uh, you know, and it's kind of this competitive and, and collaborative landscape. Uh, so obviously, I watch the industry, but as far as what Unlimited is doing, is like we're in a really good position because. Because we're cash flow positive, because we have the regulatory compliance regime and the know-how, uh, and, and because we are really good at fraud prevention, because uh, we did do a lot of high risk in in the past in our in our roots, uh, so that we know how to you know control for fraud. Uh, so you have the compliance and the risk stuff taken care of, and you know all I have to do is build a, a robust product on top uh, for for the on-chain. Uh, infrastructure that we have to build up, right? So, yeah. Cool. I think uh, that sort of covers, you know, all, all that we wanted to <laughs> chat with you about, Jack. And just just to put my two cents in, I think you know, this has been a really fascinating conversation and pretty relevant one to have right now, given what's happening in the industry with regard to regulations and exchanges and stuff. So yeah, this this was really great. And thanks again for your time, Jack. And we hope to have you join us back in the future maybe for an update on the growth of the company and the direction of the crypto payment industry in general. Uh, I'd like to chime in my appreciation also. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. You have some have some great insights into how uh, the payments work, what are the challenges uh, in the payments industry. So appreciate your sharing the, them with us. Yeah, you know, and next time we chat, hopefully, you know, the industry in relation to crypto and payments has moved forward with a lot of new developments that are going to be very exciting. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this eNaira stuff, this eRupee, this eSynY, all these kind of private network stable coins, and they're connected mm-hmm. to, to public blockchain uh, based stable coins. You know, the, I think, um, you know, the, the, the integration of payment systems with stable coins in different regions, you know, that's going to have a massive effect. You know, like, because you have like the NFT stuff and the DeFi stuff, but you know, your regular user doesn't really know about that and they don't know how to access that. That's more like a fringe niche uh, part of our industry of like all the crypto natives that do know how to do it. But like for the majority of people uh, in the South and the East, especially, uh, you know, the way that they're going to come into the space is they might not even know what blockchain network they're on. Right. And they're just using this kind of account abstracted wallet that has really good UX because the gas fees are hidden and they can move the stable coin around the world and then use different on and off ramps to come back to their bank accounts. And I think there's a lot of development in, in the payments crypto space uh, that's happening along that front. Uh, and we'll see like a lot of news come out, I think, in the next year. Uh, for these very powerful use cases. You know, it's one of those things where every idea has a time to come, right? It's like, like some people, like, like crypto, like the payments has been around, crypto payments have been around for 10 years, but every idea has its time. And, you know, there's a lot of teams that have been trying to build like international Venmos using stable coins for crypto. And there isn't mm-hmm. one today, but I think soon we'll see one or two or three or five. So it's just one of those things where I think the, the the Web2 payment infrastructure and all the actors within that layer versus the amount of builders that are 
starting to understand how these things can work together, like it's it, it'll create a perfect storm where we can see a lot of new products, either from incumbents uh, and TraFi or crypto native projects that are, you know, that are partnering with sponsored banks and payment providers to build very exciting products that the common person can use without even knowing that they're touching crypto. So, you know, this is the exciting thing about the payment space in relation to crypto of what we're going to see very soon with much better UX, much better connectivity uh, that, that serves everyday use cases that for people to use, you know, for remittance and, and FX and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great way to conclude. And uh, thank you again for spending the time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. And all the best to your team. Once again, that was Jack Gia from Unlimit. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.